Let's turn for our reading from God's Word to the letter of James. The letter of James, we begin to read in chapter 3 at verse 13, and then carry on into chapter 4. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find a disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires at battle within you? You want something but don't get it. You kill and covet but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think that Scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely, but he gives us more grace? That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Imagine driving down the road with two wheels on each side of the white line. Now, I hope you have to imagine it and you haven't actually done that uh, on occasion. But, you know, it would be an act of madness. It would be asking for trouble, it would be disaster. You're almost bound to run uh, into another vehicle. You have to be on one side of the line or the other. You can't, you dare not try to be on both sides at once. And yet there are many Christians who in their spiritual life are in effect trying to drive down the middle of the road, living their spiritual life in a similar way. Wanting at the same time to enjoy uh, the the pleasures of this world for themselves and yet at the same time remaining on good terms with the Lord. Trying to have it both ways. Trying not to be entirely on one side of the line or the other. And that's how they try to conduct their spiritual life, having it both ways. James, in the passage we're looking at today, spells it out 
very clearly, you can't do that. It's impossible. You cannot really have it both ways. So now James is going on to think about the outworking of the two kinds of wisdom. Because remember, uh, when James wrote his letter, he didn't write it in chapters and verses. Uh, Those were added in uh, by the translators much later. Uh, And so what we have is the end of chapter 3 simply goes on into what now to us is chapter 4. There are no uh, numbers or no flagging up uh, of divisions. There weren't the headings that you have perhaps in your translation. So the thought simply flows on uh, into the beginning of chapter 4. And we're going to look at verses 1 to 6 today. Friendship with the world. Friendship with the world. Because this ties in very much uh, with what James has just been saying uh, about worldly wisdom in contrast to godly wisdom. Friendship with the world. Can you have it? Do you want it? What are the consequences of seeking it? Friendship with the world. First of all, uh, in this portion, uh, James uh, offers us a condemnation of selfishness. A condemnation of selfishness. You have that really verses 1 to 3. James doesn't paint a flattering picture uh, of the lives of those to whom he's writing. Uh, Remember, right back to the beginning, he's probably writing to a a number of congregations. It's not just one uh, congregation. Uh, But when you listen to his description and the kind of things that were happening in these churches, he's certainly not flattering them. He's not painting a rosy picture uh, of how things are. Well, they're like all congregations, actually. That's the truth of it. They're made up of sinners. Now, most perhaps forgiven sinners, but they're still sinners. And we know that even when we are forgiven sinners, there's still much uh, that remains in us that is sinful and displeasing to God. When we're converted, when we're saved, we're not the finished article by any means. We all have a road to travel. And that is so for all those to whom James was writing, and indeed for all those who are reading the letter, ourselves included. Even as forgiven sinners, there's still a lot about us that is displeasing to God and dishonoring to God. And here James is building uh, on what he has been saying about worldly wisdom. Uh, And he is warning us uh, about the effects on our lives of pursuing worldly wisdom rather than godly wisdom. What if you do listen to the the non-Christian voices that are around us in the media and in all kinds of, of sources? The sorts of values and attitudes that we hear all the time. Suppose you let yourself be influenced by that worldly wisdom. What kinds of effects will it have? If you buy into that, 
rather than than soaking yourself, as it were, in, in godly wisdom in the Scriptures. What will be the results? And James tells us the results, particularly on on two issues. The first thing he mentions here uh, is strife and division. Strife and division. This is how selfishness shows itself, even in a fellowship of God's people. And it's very vivid language James uses. He is very down-to-earth, isn't he? And very direct you're not wondering what he means. It's perfectly clear what he means. Verse uh, 1, he writes about fights and quarrels among you. Or verse 2, even stronger, you kill and covet. Now, I don't think he is suggesting uh, that there is, is literal murder uh, within some of these congregations. I don't think that uh, is what James means. I think what he means is spiritual, if you like, metaphorical murder. 1 John 3, verse 15. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. I think that is what James has in mind when he talks about uh, them killing. Uh, It's spiritually, they hate their brothers. Spiritually, they are murderers. Clearly, there are some profoundly unhealthy relationships in these churches. James may be aware of particular instances, but it may be that simply James knows people and he knows Christians. And inevitably, in any group, there will be some of these things happening from time to time. Not the case that there's nothing else going on, but nevertheless, there will be fights and quarrels. There will be stresses in the relationships. Some of the relationships may be quite bad. But particularly James leaves us in no doubt about the cause of these problems. Why is this among people who profess to love the Lord Jesus Christ? And maybe we ask ourselves, why is that the case in churches? We think of divisions of strife, of bad relationships. Why is that the case? And James offers us what is undoubtedly one of the fundamental causes of these divisions, of this strife. He says, they come from your desires that battle within you. Here are our minds, you see, that are set not on the Lord and on the things of God, but minds that are set on the world, on its values and attitudes, on what it offers. You see how it links into the the worldly wisdom that that he writes about at the end of chapter 3. And here is worldly wisdom shaping the thinking and the, the behavior of professing Christians. And here are desires battling within them. Here are minds set on the things of this world. And in particular, it is selfishness, self-centeredness. They covet, and because they don't get or can't get what they want, then they, they resent 
others. They resent them for what they have. They covet the things that others have. We might think immediately of those who have more money. But it isn't necessarily only that. It may be those who are more successful. It may be those who are more intelligent or who are better educated. Uh, It may be those who are better thought of in the community or of a higher standing, who are more popular. There are many reasons why we might envy others, why we might covet what they have. It might well be more possessions, but there are many things that you can covet, many things that others may have more of that you would like to have and don't. And so easily then we slip into resenting them for what they have and what we don't have. And James exposes their motivation ruthlessly. The goal of possessing these things, whether it is material possessions or something else, he tells us in verse 3, you're coveting, you want them, that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. That's the selfishness, the self-centeredness of it. It's not for a moment that they are thinking, oh, I wish I had more money because I could give to missions and I could support Christian work. If they want more money, it's because they can spend it on themselves or anything else that you might covet. The motivation self-centered. I want it for myself. Now that might include immediate friends or family, but it's ultimately self-centered. Whatever we are envying others for. And it is dangerously easy for Christians to imbibe the values and the attitudes of the world. Especially with regard to material possessions. The wealthy are envied and resented. But it isn't only non-Christians who may envy them and resent them. Why should he have all of that when I have only this? And we can catch ourselves sometimes if we're honest thinking in that worldly way. Now, Jesus warned us clearly, didn't he? Luke 12, 15, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And yet we're living in a society, in a culture, that so often says that is what a man's life consists in. Sometimes perhaps Riley uh, summed up uh, in the world's Outlook as the one who dies with the most toys wins. And you put it that way and it looks ridiculous, but yet people are living like that. And Christians can slip into living in the same way. If I just had a bit more. The billionaire who was asked how much is enough and his answer was just a little more. And Christians aren't immune from that way of thinking. 
Just a little more. Don't want to be a millionaire. But just a little more. A bit more of what he has or she has. And I'd be happy. How often we fail to listen to Jesus' warnings. You remember the parable of the different soils and the seed that was sown on them. And you had the case where, for a time, the crop sprang up and then it was choked. And among the things that choked the word, Mark 4, 19 are the desires for other things. That's exactly what James is talking about. And that will choke the word in your heart and life. It'll choke your spiritual life. It'll strangle you if you allow these things to shape your life and your thinking and your outlook. And so James says, what's the result? Well, here among what are supposedly God's people, he's not saying they aren't Christians. There's strife, there's bad feeling. They see others not as primarily brothers or sisters in the Lord, but they're they're rivals, they're competitors for these things that we really want to have. And that colors the whole way that you look at other people, if that's your mindset. And so as he condemns selfishness, he deals first of all with strife and division because that is how selfishness will often show itself and it can easily penetrate a Christian's heart and mind. Be on your guard. Strife and division, but also the second thing James highlights is the fact that often As a result of selfishness, prayer is corrupted. Prayer is corrupted. If we're influenced by the values of the world, one of the first ways you'll see it is your prayer life will suffer. Isn't that true? You find I haven't prayed the way I I, I usually do. I haven't prayed properly for a long time. And when you really get down to it, It's because of this worldly thinking and self-centeredness you don't have because you do not ask God. Now, it's not saying anything you ask God for, he'll give you. Of course not. Scripture never promises that. But what he's warning us of is simply this, that we can easily forget how we depend on God for what we need. And we focus on the things we want and the things we'd like to have And so our whole attitude to God and to prayer gets out of shape. And when we do pray, maybe we don't get what we're asking for. And James says, well, here's a possible reason. You ask with wrong motives. Maybe that's what's wrong. Your motivation is selfish, self-centered. Look at your prayers sometime. Look at them honestly. And how often are our prayers not much more than a shopping list of things we want God to give us? God encourages us to ask for what we need. We're not for a moment denying that. We're to come in faith humbly and ask for what we need. 
But yet are our prayers often nothing more than asking for what we need or, if we're honest, for what we want? And then we read perhaps some of the prayers of the great saints of the past, godly men and women, and we think, my prayers are nothing like that. And probably they're not. So often they're wrapped around what I would like to have and what I want God to give me. The truth is God can't be manipulated to serve us. God isn't some kind of slot machine that you put in a prayer and you get out what you want. Many people treat God or try to treat God like that. Or think if I pray really hard, I'll get it. You can't twist God's arm. You won't have it. Our motivation must be right. And so easily worldly wisdom twists our thinking. And in fact, of course, in the end, it doesn't satisfy us. It doesn't satisfy. It doesn't really give us what we think we want. You cannot have what you want, James says. And you get back to the motives and the outlook, the selfishness, the self-centeredness, the materialistic, worldly way of thinking, and it's no surprise. A condemnation of selfishness. We need to examine ourselves, examine our prayers in the light of what James says. Then he goes on, verses 4 and 5, to a condemnation of compromise. A condemnation of compromise. James shows sin for what it is. He doesn't dress it up pretty colors. And he addresses our, our trying to have it both ways. Back to driving down the middle of the road here. Having what the world offers and also having the benefits of a relationship with God. And he says, you can't do it. You cannot have it both ways. A stinging accusation, verse 4, you adulterous people. He's talking about spiritual adultery. And he goes on to explain what he means. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? You can't be the world's friend and God's friend. You might try it. You might think you can, but James says you can't. You're deceiving yourself if you think you can. There's room for only one, as it were, spiritual marriage for the Christian. And God won't allow any rivals. To give anything else the place in your heart and life that God should have, the Bible describes as spiritual adultery. Very common language in the Old Testament, for example. You find it in the prophets, Hosea and others, condemning Israel because they wanted a bit of the Lord, but they wanted some of the other gods as well for what they thought, the harvest they give and the crops and so on. It's exactly what James is condemning here, trying to have it both ways. But the Lord won't share his people with another God. He is, as Exodus 20 and verse 5 tells us, he's a jealous God, and it's a good thing he is. He won't share us. It's a mark of his love for his people. And of course, from our point of view, we cannot maintain two supreme loyalties, spiritually speaking. Matthew six twenty four, Jesus tells us, no one can serve two masters. He goes on, you can't serve both God 
and money. And attempts to have it both ways. Attempts to be the world's friend and God's friend. Attempts to have two masters are doomed. There is no middle ground. It cannot be done. James tells us bluntly anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Well, I mean, that is as clear and direct as it could be, isn't it? If you're trying to be a friend of the world, you're also trying to be and succeeding in being an enemy of God. It's a serious matter. It's not trivial. And yet it's a sin, isn't it, that's so deeply rooted in us. As fallen creatures, we know, we've talked about it often, there is a bias in us towards sin. You don't have to be taught to sin. And even when we are saved, if we are truly the Lord's people, there are still many sinful inclinations in our hearts that are going to have to be rooted out. And it's a lifelong occupation. And it seems that's the meaning of verse 5. Now, depending on the translation you have, verse 5 will read very, very differently. And the older NIV uh, that I read, you see here, Scripture, do you think Scripture says without reason, the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely. Now, if you have the newer NIV, it'll be quite different. Uh, he uh, longs over, something to that effect, the spirit he's put within us. If you have the ESV, again, it'll be something similar. And you look at the original, and it could be either. That, that's the truth of the matter. Sometimes you might think, if only I knew Greek, it would answer all my questions. Actually, no, it'll give you a few new questions. But it'll answer some of the others. It's difficult to know which it is, to be quite frank, in verse 5. And different good commentators take it in different ways. I think, for what it's worth, the best reading is the one I read out. And it's referring to our spirits as Christians that envy intensely, that there is that kind of uh, self-centeredness still uh, within us uh, that has to be dealt with and rooted out. We need to confess that sin when we see it. Uh, It has to be mortified. And in the end, only when the Lord takes us to glory will it finally disappear. There is a self-centeredness rooted uh, within us, uh, and it has to be faced. Uh, It has to be dealt with. There's selfishness uh, that James uh, condemns uh, and It's a serious uh, sin. He makes that clear. And it often shows itself in the kind of compromise that we've been thinking about where we try to be the world's friend and get along with it and its values and its attitudes, but also to be a Christian as well. And you cannot have it both ways. The selfishness and the compromise are sins that need to be confessed, that need to be rooted We've got to set our faces against compromise. It's easier, or it seems easier, to go along with the world's values and its philosophies and its outlook. 
We have to dare to be different. That's the challenge. Now, it may be costly, and it's going to be, I think, more costly in coming days for Christians to dare to be different. And for the younger generations particularly, I think it may be very hard to live a consistent Christian life. But if we love the Lord, we have to be resolved wholeheartedly to follow him. We sang about an undivided heart. That's what we need. Our hearts are too often divided. Undivided commitment. Think of Joshua. Joshua twenty four fifteen. As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And we've got to be prepared to serve the Lord, whatever the cost. And ask him to forgive and root out the selfishness and the compromise that James has exposed. That's tough. It's not easy for us. And it's important that we finish, as James does this section, verse 6, with a word of hope. A word of hope. Because the task would be overwhelming if it came down to our strength and our wisdom. We'd be overwhelmed. And you try it on your own, you know you'll be overwhelmed. But there's good news here as well because you don't need to do it on your own. And you must not do it on your own. He gives us more grace. Isn't that wonderful? He gives us more grace. The secret of uncompromising Christian living is the grace of God. Not our strength, God's grace The Holy Spirit indwelling us will give us that grace. Remember the promise we have in Hebrews 4.16? If you approach the throne of grace, what will God give you? What will you find when you approach the throne of grace? You'll find grace to help in your time of need. There's the promise. There's the encouragement. And that applies as much to your struggle with selfishness and materialism and worldly thinking as it does to any of your other needs. Grace to help in your time of need. Proverbs 3.34 is what James uh, quotes here. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. That encourages us. That strengthens us. Sin can be overcome by the grace of God. But of course you have to be humble and ask for it. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And if you know you're not strong enough for this battle and you know you've failed many times and you're convinced if you do it in your own strength you'll fail again. In that humble spirit, ask God for grace and he'll give it and he'll not fail you. This is the God who promised Paul and promises us in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, my grace is sufficient for you. Whatever he asks of you, and particularly opposing selfishness and resisting compromise, My grace is sufficient for you. There's the word of hope I need, you need, we all need. 
tremendous challenges to us, the sin that remains in us that makes us self-centered and selfish, that shows itself often in compromise and trying to have it both ways. Here's the answer. He gives more grace. And if you rely on that grace, you will be able to live a godly life that is not self-centered. You will be able to stand fast and not compromise when pressure is put on you, as it will be. If you're humble, it's to the humble God gives grace. And it's always sufficient.